You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F*** that. You don't got time for that. All right, let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. We're on KLWN.com or the KLWN app as well. Coming up in about 35 minutes from right now, we'll talk with Rachel Barbo about Kind of the mental side of sports coming up with Rachel. More college football realignment talk to lead off the show today. I've been spending so much time talking about, well, Kansas should do everything in their power to try to get into a Big Ten, a Pac-12, an ACC, because the money is just not there if you end up in the AAC or the Mountain West. Getting almost $40 million to be in the Big 12, Right now, AAC teams are getting $7 million. That is a big drop in the bucket. You could continue to be bad at football, but just being in one of those power conferences is such a boon to your athletic department in terms of money and in terms of your university. So you do everything in your power to try to stay in. One possible scenario we haven't really gone over yet that I do want to go over is what happens if the Big 12 does try to fight this thing out. Right now, Texas and Oklahoma have made it known that they are going to stay through the media rights agreement through the end of the 2024-25 season. However, it seems most likely that is just legal talk and they're going to try to get out as soon as possible. The Big 12 probably doesn't have the luxury of waiting four years to figure this all out. They have to act quickly, and this becomes a difficult situation. I don't know how likely the Big 12 can actually put something together because other schools might be wanting to jump ship. But let's go through the exercise just in case. And I think we start here. The Athletic wrote a piece examining the best and worst cases for all the remaining Big 12 schools. It was Andy Staples, Max Olson, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago, David Ubin, who all contributed. Here's what they said about Kansas and I guess Iowa State as well. They were, they were grouped together with trying to hitch on what they call the life raft to the Big Ten. 
Kansas and Iowa State have a Hail Mary to throw. They might want to start winding up for that one. Philosophically, they both align with the Big Ten, even through though Kansas is not a land-grant university. Both are members of the Association of American Universities. Though that emphasis isn't what it was during the last round of realignment, however, Big Ten has said that if they add anybody, they will be in the AAU. U.S. News ranks ISU and KU the highest of any of the remaining public Big 12 universities. Iowa State can sell strong football and basketball programs, and though Kansas has an elite basketball brand, its football program is an anchor around its neck at the moment. No Power 5 program has been worse over the past decade, and even with a new coach, the road ahead looks rocky. And we've talked about this before. That's probably the selling point for Travis Goff. It's, hey, we're really bad at football right now. We get that, but we're still third in the Big 12 in revenue, only behind Texas and Oklahoma. We're still 28th in the country in revenue. Now imagine if our football does get good how expensive uh, or or how much money we're going to bring in. They go on to say, but no one else in the Big 12 has any case to join the league that is best positioned to stand alongside the SEC as the most valuable leagues in college sports. And if either school can land there, it would be a coup. Adding a second program from the state of Iowa could be a major stumbling block, and Iowa could oppose rival Iowa State's entrance. There's some hope for these two, but it's not much more than hope. It's clear, though, their best-case scenario is winning over Kevin Warren and enough of the league membership to get serious consideration as college sports appear headed toward consolidation. And I think that's important as well to remember here. The Big Ten's not just going to add one school. So I don't know if the Big Ten does or does not have interest in Kansas. There have been reports that there's been some sort of back-channeling, some sort of conversations there, but do they actually have interest? I don't know. But surely the Big Ten would not actually add Kansas unless they were adding a second team as well. You're not going to go up to an odd amount of teams, 15 teams. You get up to 16. Does that mean you can add a Notre Dame? Does that mean you can add from another conference, a Virginia, a random ACC school? Does it mean you can add a Pac-12 school? Does it mean Kansas can bring somebody with them? The most logical would be Iowa State because the AAU membership, because of the fact that you would have the in-state rivalry tie with the University of Iowa. But if Iowa doesn't want it, similar to how Texas A&M doesn't want Texas, There'd be even more weight in it for Iowa not wanting Iowa State because I don't think it would be as unanimous of a vote to say, hey, let's bring on Iowa State, as is in the SEC, where the rest of the schools say, no, it's a no-brainer money-wise to bring on Texas. So that could leave you in a position where maybe you don't get into the Big Ten. And we had the report yesterday saying that, and again, we don't know the credibility of it, but that the Pac-12 and Big 12 would merge and that they leave behind Texas Tech and Kansas. And we don't know where things would stand with the ACC, which means that let's play out this hypothetical of the Big 12 possibly poaching some group of five schools to become more stable. So in that scenario, you'd first off have to accept that you'll be making way less money of a member as that league, as I just talked about. But the question is, can you raise that baseline of instead of dropping off from making... $37 $37 million for being a member of the Big 12, instead of dropping all the way to $7 million in the AAC, can you drop that off down to $15, $20, million, $25 million? That would be important if the Big 12 were to remain a thing. And in that scenario where you're accepting that, you could probably get your conference back up to 12 teams for its namesake and you know get up to the Big 12 again and be better off than the AAC, but still worse off than Pac-12, ACC, Big Ten, or SEC. You'd kind of be in that limbo. I don't know if you'd be considered a power conference or if you'd just be considered the best non-power conference. You'd kind of be right in between those. 
And it'll be interesting to see kind of the tug of war that's at play between the group of five and the Big 12 right now. Back a decade ago, the Mountain West made a play at a couple different Big 12 schools who might have gotten left behind if the Big 12 would have had a bunch of schools go on to the Pac-10 at the time. There might be some interest there. There might be some interest of certain schools just to say, hey, let's jump ship now. Let's go to the American Athletic Conference. There might be some of the other way where the AAC says we want Big Big 12 schools, and it sounds like they want to be aggressive, but also some of the AAC schools say, yeah, but I still want to jump ship and join the Big 12, even though it could be a sinking ship. There's more potential for higher earnings to be made, more money to be made. So it's kind of a tug of war between you could have some schools in the AAC saying, let's just wait for them to come to us. And you might have other schools saying, no, screw that. I'm going to go right now. But if you are imploring the Big 12 into expansion, adding more schools, because if the Big 12 is going to stay together, you obviously have to add more schools. With the way super conferences are going, the Big 8, that can't exist anymore unless you have eight powerful, powerful conference, uh, league members. And you don't have that without Texas or Oklahoma. Nebraska is no longer in the league as it was in the Big 8. So here's the schools that I think make the most sense. Cincinnati and Memphis from the American Athletic Conference, those both would give West Virginia nearby partners. We know Cincinnati has been really good at football of late. They're usually a solid basketball school. past two years haven't gone as well. But when Mick Cronin was there, and even before Mick Cronin, Bob Huggins, they've been really good at basketball. I think they would make a lot of sense. You also get the Ohio media market, which... Might not be the biggest market in the world, but there's a lot of really good recruits that come out of the state of Ohio every year. Memphis, that's big money. That's FedEx money coming in. Gives you another team close by, more toward the East Coast of your West Virginias, your Cincinnati's. We know that they have a ton of money invested. We know it is a big market being in the Memphis, Tennessee area. And they've been good at football. They've been solid at basketball. I think those are two you easily reach out to. UCF, another one you reach out to. Their athletic department is humming right now, especially with the football. You bring in Gus Malzahn as a head coach there. You would get the Florida media market. Orlando is one of the biggest markets um, just in terms of, I believe UCF is actually like one of the biggest commuter schools and it brings in a ton of people. SMU and Houston, you get them both from the Texas area and now you have other schools to compete in the Texas area to kind of fortify your position there with the Baylors and the Texas Techs of the world. And we know that SMU and Houston have ties to the old Southwestern Conference where maybe it makes sense here. It's kind of like a mix of the Big 8 and the Southwestern Conference. And then if you want to, you can go with Tulsa as well. That would give Oklahoma State another school in the state to compete with. Tulsa's been solid at basketball for some time now. They've been solid at football. Uh, Had a really good year last year. Had a couple down years before that, but were really good for a long stretch before then. Those are the ones you mainly target from the AAC. From the Mountain West, you go heavily after Boise State. They haven't been great at basketball, but they haven't been bad either. They're usually around a team who's maybe competing in the NIT or maybe flirting with the NCAA tournament. I think they were in the first four a couple years ago. Football, we know they have a lot of value for Boise State, so that would be a good pickup there. And then you get BYU, who's an independent right now. They obviously have a lot of value, not just market-wise in the Salt Lake City area, but we know they're usually good at different athletic programs, really good at volleyball, good at basketball. They're usually good at football. Last year, they were really good at football. Those are the main ones you go after. And by my count, Cincy, Memphis, 
UCF, SMU, Houston, Tulsa, Boise State, BYU. That's eight schools. That would get you up to 16. The reason you want as many as possible is, one, to weather another storm if anybody else leaves. But, two, you want to make this as powerful of a conference as possible. That's part of the worry here. The Big 12 has sat on their ass for so long, and they haven't been a proponent of being proactive. So I doubt they would be forward-thinking enough to actually do that. They'd probably just say, oh, we'll just we'll just add two more. We'll be fine at 10. Or maybe we'll add four more and go back to our namesake of the Big 12. That might be okay, but if you want to find more security, get up as many as you can. And those are just the main ones you target. I don't know that any of them accept. I don't know that all of them accept. But there's some backups you could go with as well. Tulane. Uh, they're in Louisiana. They're in the New Orleans market. That's a big market, and they're right by the Texas schools. South Florida, if you want to get in the Florida market and maybe you want a pair for UCF, that gets you into the Florida market. Navy, Army, and Air Force, you could add the three different military schools, and that would be fun from a rivalry perspective. Um, it would also add a little bit of prestige to the conference. Wyoming, Colorado State would be ones you could add kind of in the Central part of the country area, Colorado State would get you back into Colorado, which you lost with the Buffaloes. UNLV, you could get into Las Vegas. And then how about this one? North Dakota State, you could bring in from the FCS. I, I don't know if they'd be even interested in moving up from the FBS, but you at least talk to them about it because that would be a very interesting hire. And they would basically control that entire northern central part of the country, basically from the left of like Wisconsin and Minnesota all the way to, I don't know, like Montana. There's no other really schools up there in the power conferences. So I think those are all ones you reach out to with the main ones being the ones that I previously said. Cole, uh, I'm here with Cole Cedabutar. I don't even know if I've said that yet. Um, but Cole, is there any teams there that kind of stick out to you? Any ones that you think that maybe you'd go the most at? Um, I, I'm definitely uh, a big fan of pursuing Boise State. Some of these other Mountain West schools – I think would be great pickups for the Big 12. But I guess that brings up a big question, which is if you're like a Mountain West school, are you're not on a sinking ship. The Mountain West, I think, is in a pretty good state. It's been in a pretty good state for a couple of years now. Um, so are you actually willing to jump off your stable ice cap yeah. of the Mountain West into a ship that may or may not uh, be sinking. You're going to end up with more revenue in the short term. I would definitely say any any team that mm -hmm. comes from the Mountain West to the Big 12 would end up with more revenue. But what if we have to do this dance again in another five years, right? Then, then you're going to end up really getting the short end of the stick. Um, so I would definitely try to pursue these Mountain West schools like Boise State, uh, but I, I'm just not really convinced that they it would be in their best interest, or maybe I'm not convinced that they would think it's in their best interest. Yeah, no, that's that's the ultimate. I mean, it's a risk because it's like if you were on a site where you could trade cars, and I guess I could have just said like Craigslist or something. But it's like you're on Craigslist and you say, "Hey, I have a, I have a Prius, but like it's a really nice Prius. There's very few miles on it." You're going to get a lot of use out of this, and there's no issues with the car right now. I'm going to trade it to you for your Porsche, but your Porsche is 30 years old. It needs two new tires. The engine needs to be replaced. There's a lot of work that has to go into that Porsche. I'd rather have the Porsche when it's fixed, 
but I don't have the opportunity to get the Porsche in that trade if the Porsche is fixed. It's either now or never. So you got to make that risk. And that's part of this here because the thing that's going their way in a possibility of if they wanted to expand the Big 12 is that you have the 12-team playoff coming up. And who knows when that'll be. It could be a while. It could be another five years. But part of that format is allowing the top six conference winners into the playoff. So in theory, you'd be fine regardless. You'd still get a team in probably every year if you have a collection of those teams with what you currently have. And I mean, the loss of money and prestige still makes it a net negative, but this option of adding to the current league, it's probably the best alternative if you can't get in to the Big Ten or the ACC or the Pac-12. But the big issue is what you alluded to. It's not just the less money that you'd be getting for staying in the Big 12 as opposed to leaving those others, even if you realign it. Maybe it's not as much as dropping to a group of five, but you're still making less money than you are now. And the biggest part here is the word trust because everybody would have to trust each other. Every school currently in the Big 12 would have to trust each other. Every school who would join the conference would have to trust each other because think about it. What happens if Cincinnati and Memphis say, okay, we'll come over, and then two months later, West Virginia's like, sorry, we're piecing to the ACC. So who's to say they don't leave to be closer to their league mates, and then you're definitely screwed? I have a question for you. How many teams do you think have to leave the Big 12 for it to completely collapse in on itself? Like, like that's a, that's a kind of interesting question, right? Where we can try to bring people in, and we might have success uh, doing that, but What's the what's the minimum we need to remain solvent? Like if 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 K State can't find a spot in like the Pac-12, which is I think kind of where their target yeah. is right now. If K State can't find a target there, if uh, Oklahoma State can't find uh, a target there, where what are they doing? Are they staying in the Big 12 and just trying to pull guys in and make it like a eight-team small little league to compete with the Mountain West? I mean that's that's the ultimate question because. Part of me just wants to say if one more is gone, it's over. Because of that, I mean, it's already a sinking ship without Texas and Oklahoma, but you can buoy it a little bit by adding other schools. Now, if another school leaves, that's where the trust factor comes in. For them to do this, everybody has to be on board. Everybody has to trust each other that we're staying. Because if one more leaves, now it's like, okay, now it is everybody for themselves. Now one more left, now it's a domino effect. We're all leaving now because we thought we were in it together, but obviously we're not. They pieced, we're all gone. So part of me thinks that, but another part of me says, well, what happens if you just lost West Virginia? Like, is West Virginia versus having Cincinnati, is that much of a a difference in your conference? Probably not. So I don't know. West Virginia hasn't been in that long. You know, like, uh, we love the historical aspects of the Big 12, but uh, that is what would matter with the West Virginia thing. If if KU dipped... uh, that would be a problem, you know. That's that's a that's a founding member, right? Uh, but West Virginia, it's like they just showed up. They're the new yeah. kid on the block. Who cares if they go home? Yeah, but like, imagine if you're again. I'm just using Cincinnati a lot. Let's let's just go with BYU on this one. Imagine if you're. Well, that's a bad one as well because they're not in a conference. Um, let's just go with Memphis. Memphis joins the Big Twelve, and then all of a sudden, two years down the road, West Virginia leaves for the ACC. Texas Tech leaves for the Pac-12. Kansas State leaves for the Big Ten. Whatever. What do you do if you're Memphis? 
do you try to come crawling back to the AAC at that point? Do the, Does the AAC accept you? Are you just SOL there? Like, I don't know what goes on there. So all that makes me question the viability of even being able to do this, of even being able to add these schools. And that's why I still think option A, B, and C are Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC, in some order. It doesn't matter what order. Just get in one of those power conferences. I think this is option D. It's still ahead of option E through Z, which would be leaving the league to have to join the AAC or the Mountain West or the Sun Belt or whatever. It's better than that because it's at least a little higher up than those conferences. But I also think this is this has got to be probably the least likely of the scenarios, right? Just because of how many things have to go right to make it work. Yeah, um, I think the idea that all of the athletic departments and universities have to be 100% transparent with each other is the biggest joke. <laughs> like, I mean, I think that the guys in the Big 12 front office found out the same time we did that Texas and OU were going to leave. That's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's embarrassing. That's, I mean, I talked about this yesterday. I, could you imagine, too, it's been under wraps so long, or it was Texas and Oklahoma talking with the SEC. Like, imagine, for all we know, the SEC is talking with Clemson and Ohio State and Michigan. We just haven't heard about it yet. And they're just going to create a super conference and everybody else is going to be screwed. Well, you know, if there's only one conference, then there's actually no conferences and it's all okay. So (laughs) that's a good point. Everyone will receive uh, money from Big Daddy SEC (laughs) and it'll all be all right. Yeah, that's a good point. The SEC is just the new NCAA. Either that or maybe, maybe Notre Dame had it right all along. Screwing in a conference, you know, forget having to hope that your other league members have to vote with you on stuff or have to stay in the conference for it to remain a conference. Just be independent, you know, and honestly, it, it only works for the biggest schools. Like, I don't think you could get away with that. Especially private schools. It helps right. with private schools. And too. they're such a big brand. They've been indoctrinated in college athletics and just school wise for so long that you can't just you can't just function on that. Like BYU's independent, but even them, like to Notre Dame, there's a big drop off there, and then BYU to the next independent, which I don't know who that would be, maybe like Liberty or something. There's another big drop off there, uh, New Mexico State. I, so I don't know, but there, there's definitely probably more appealing about being an independent with Notre Dame than I once originally thought. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. He's Cole C. Debutar. I'm Derek Johnson. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll be joined by Rachel Barbau. She'll talk about kind of the mental side of sports. She just spoke with the KU football team about a week ago. This is RCST. About half past the hour, this is Rock Jock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson with Cole C. DeButar. NBA draft is tomorrow night. That kind of snuck up on everyone. Usually it's at the end of June, but now at the end of July... Top of the draft is supposed to be, question mark, Cade Cunningham. It sounds like Detroit might be trying to like throw smoke screens out there. I have a hard time believing like Cade Cunningham is not going to go number one in the draft. To Detroit. Yes, to Detroit. I should clarify that because there have been other rumors about Detroit trading the pick away, which I don't understand. It's not like Detroit is in a win-now situation unless they get like a young, really good player. But that's the thing. Yeah. There's that rumor that uh... – the OKC Thunder beat guys have sort of uh, disavowed, but I think there's some Detroit beat guys who might think it's true uh, that the Thunder wanted to trade uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander and the sixth pick for the number one overall pick, which is a heck of a package. Yeah, I think, gosh, 
I might actually do that if I was Detroit because of the fact that Shea Gilgis Alexander is a big guard. He's like six five, six six. I think he's six six. Yeah, he's basically what you're kind of hoping Cade Cunningham is, who's a little bit bigger. He's like six seven, six eight, but that's kind of the thought of what he can be. He's a big guard who can create for others, shoot a little bit, do a little bit of everything for you. Now you get more years of control with Cade Cunningham, but. You don't have the certain, like with Shea Gillis-Alexander, he is what he is right now, which is a borderline all-star type player, maybe an all-star in, in a few years with development. Well, that's the weird thing about the NBA, isn't it, is that for some reason we've decided that unproven assets are worth more than assets that you know exactly what they are. Right. Shea Gillis-Alexander is an asset where you know exactly what he is, and what he is is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's um, a good leader. He's a good defender. He's just all around a great player and a great guy to have on your team. But for some reason, he's, he's 23 years old, by the way, too. Yeah, so yeah. Not, yeah. For some reason, he is valued significantly lower than a person that has not played a single minute on an NBA yeah. court. But I do think that that shows you how much the hype is there for Cade Cunningham. I just find it interesting because Cade Cunningham is not one of those guys who people are fawning about his potential. His, oh, he could be the next LeBron James. It's more so like, Cade Cunningham is really, really good at basketball, and he's going to be really good in the NBA, but I don't think he's going to be like a top five player, top ten player. And if that's the calculus, that trade becomes a lot more interesting. You're getting their first round. I mean, they're they're picking six in the draft, too. You can get another good player like a Kaminga or a Scotty Barnes or something like that. I would be very interested in doing that. And maybe because you're so interested, that's why the Thunder didn't actually offer that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, beyond that, I think the most interesting part of the draft is assuming that Cade Cunningham goes number one, which, again, barring some trade like that, seems like it's going to happen, is what the heck happens between two through four, two through five, two through six, whatever in that range. You have guys like Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs, Jalen Green. Um, Jonathan Kaminga is kind of the raw prospect athlete who – Maybe if you shape him the right way, he becomes this superstar type of wing player, which are always needs in the NBA. Even Scotty Barnes for defense. There's a lot of questions between that range. And then I think it kind of drops off a little bit after that this year, specifically um, from pick seven and on. Hypothetically, like you're going to have the college guys go with Davion Mitchell and some international prospects that those are more question marks. But I think those top six picks are going to be very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm I guess I'm worried about players like Jonathan Kaminga in that just because you're tall and have long arms doesn't mean you're going to be the next Giannis. It might mean you're the next Mobamba. Mm-hmm. And if you're drafting Mobamba at five, at six, you're an unhappy customer. <laughs> Okay, uh, you know, we, we were talking about uh, a second ago, Cade, like, what if Cade's not a top 15 player? I think if he's right on that edge, you're okay with drafting Cade number one. If you could see the future and saw that Cade Cunningham was going to be the 16th or 17th best player in the NBA, you probably still draft yes. him at number one. Yeah. Uh, so, you, but with these, like, raw physical athletes, you know, who, like, go in these mid first round pit not sorry uh, mid lottery picks like Kaminga you just worry about them being more like Mobamba and less like Giannis well and we've seen a lot of them fail and I think I think part of the thing is whenever we get those types of prospects our eye automatically goes to this guy's going to be boomer bust whereas we don't think about that as much with the college guys but 
It might happen at the same amount. I, I don't actually know. I just think it's interesting to look at the draft philosophy from two ways. Do you view it as if you're picking that high in the draft, well, I better just take the home run swing because I'm obviously bad. And if I get a player who is like, like if I were to draft, I'm trying to think of like a good example in the NBA. If I were to draft Nikola Vucevic, who's been an all-star a couple times, if I were to draft him, pick number five, I'm obviously going to be a better team. But how much is that moving the needle? Am I a contender now? Or am I just like a borderline playoff team? Versus if I bust on this pick, I'll just pick again high next year. And I took the home run swing. I'm going for the guy who's going to be that top 10, top 15 player. I mean, where do you kind of sit there? Because I, I think you can make the argument both ways. And I I don't honestly know where I would sit. I'm kind of riding the fence on this. Maybe I'd be a terrible GM. But I think you, <laughs> I think uh, part of the NBA is creating the, uh, the longest championship window you can by drafting solid players year after year after year. Right. So, you know, the point is, is that gets harder once you're drafting in the 20s, you know, but if you're drafting in the lottery for a couple years, you should be able to ge- you should be able to generate enough value that even if you're not picking uh, these like guys who are boomer bust, you know, you never end up with an all NBA level talent through the draft. You draft enough like guys who are all star caliber to maybe pull an all NBA guy mm-hmm. in free agency and that's a championship team. So you I, don't I think always what you're have describing to draft is, the all NBA guy. Yeah, you're you're kind of describing like the Toronto Raptors, how they kind of built that and then Kawhi ended up coming over and yeah, you set exactly. yourself up. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I I think it's just interesting because you can argue for it both ways. You can say, Well, I don't think like we're not gonna bet on this guy to be the next Giannis, but we gotta take a swing at it. And if the Bucks never took a swing at it, they wouldn't have ended up with him, you know? But also there have been so many cases, like you mentioned, with Mo Bamba. With we were just talking about Jackson Hayes in the break with some off the court stuff, but that was another guy who was like, "Oh, he's this raw potential prospect. He's big. He's long. He's a high vertical." There's another guy in this draft, Kai Jones from Texas, who's the same way. I just think it's kind of an interesting philosophy. I think that the problem is is that too many GMs try it. Mm-hmm. I think if you you know had less GMs trying to just find the the diamond in the rough you might be better off but as it stands now you see a bunch of guys who uh they generally can play defense all right uh but they shoot 38 percent from the field and they go and play in china after a couple years you know Mm -hmm. yep no we'll definitely see what happens and marcus garrett will be in the draft we'll see if he ends up getting drafted if he does i think that'd be a big win uh for him but either way i'm sure he'll end up on a roster tomorrow night after the draft even if he's not picked probably get like a two-way contract or something so we'll let you know about that we'll talk more about it tomorrow and then on friday as well he's cool c to butar i'm Derek johnson coming up on the other side rachel barbo talks about kind of the mental side of sports i'm Derek johnson this is rcst welcome back in rock chalk sports talk here i'm Derek johnson on fm 1017 and 1320 klwn we're joined by a special guest now today on a wednesday normally we talk to jesse newell the kansas city start this time on wednesday he's on vacation we got an opening, and we're going to talk to Rachel Barbo, who uh, actually just spoke with the KU football team last week. She has a thing called I'm Changing the Narrative, which addresses kind of mental health in the sports field, which is obviously pretty prevalent right now, not just in sports with things going on like Simone Biles and so forth, but in society just as a whole with mental health, especially coming off of COVID. I think there's been a lot addressed with that in general. So, Rachel, thank you for joining us today. 
what is kind of the goal and, and what are you trying to accomplish here with the I'm changing the narrative campaign? You know, what, what we say in our um, we say in our mission statement is good love. When you have good love for yourself, then you have good love for others, right? Um, when you think that you're a miracle, you, you treat others the same. When you recognize that fact, you, you treat other people and, and, and look at them like, hey, am I making a deposit into their life or withdrawal? And so we talk about a number of different things. We talk about identity beyond athletics. We talk about mental health. And we talk about how to do relationships both with ourselves and others. You know, what's interesting to me, I was a sportscaster for 17 years. First female host on Sirius XM on their collegiate stations, voted for the Heisman, worked for the college football playoffs. What's interesting to me is we just kind of expect um, young people and older people, too, to know how to have really positive relationships when a lot of us did not see them in the home growing up. We may have seen seen a parent be absent. We may see dad hit mom, mom hit dad, somebody drank too much, substance abuse, whatever it may be. Didn't have to be trauma. Could be just the, the lack of love. I've had a back and forth discourse this morning with um, a lot of men on on uh, on Twitter about uh, crying and, be, and and being able to show emotion. I know so many young men I've held at fifty plus colleges across the country in five years that I've been doing this that have said, "Look, you know, like in my house, you crying was weakness. Like you did not show emotion, and so you imagine that." You know, and I'm not mad at anybody's parents. It's societal. It's it's cultural. It's all of those things. And but you get that message, particularly with men. You get that message that hey, you know, because, you know, showing weaknesses or showing emotion is weakness, or crying is weakness. Then you compound that, and maybe they have another coach that says that. But but regardless of what ways that message is is found into them, you end up having a young man or an older man who thinks it's not masculine to struggle. Um, that it's not masculine to show emotion. And, and I, I know it's directly correlated to the record number of suicides we're seeing every day in this country and in the world. And not only this country, uh, I'd say not only literal suicides, but slow suicides, which are the ones where we wear a mask and we, we say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, and we laugh in your face. But inside we may have depression, we may have anxiety, we may have suicidal ideations, we may have other mental issues going on. And so um, there's a lot that we do, and I know I just put a lot at your doorstep. But it was such an amazing visit, and can't wait to come back. Yeah, how did things go talking with the team? What was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. So, okay, so let me just go ahead and tell Kansas fans um, that Lance Leipold is amazing. If you haven't figured this out yet, I'm a big fan of his. He, uh, I went to speak for him twice at Buffalo, um, and I think he's the perfect man for the job. I, I do, and and so I, I went into, um, you know, when he, he got the job, I immediately texted him and said, you know, I want to come speak for you at Kansas. He said, heck, yeah, you know, let me get my feet wet, and then you'll come. And so we, uh, we did that. What was interesting, too, is that the commissioner was with me. Um, I've done some work with the Big 12 as a whole. So Commissioner Bowlesby actually flew up to hear me speak um, and was there, and then I went back to Dallas with them before departing elsewhere and that's when he got the news about this whole conference realignment stuff. So that was just an interesting little side note of, of the talk. But it was great. And, you know, look, I can talk all day long. But what I say to these players, both male and female all over the country, is I can make you feel today. But if you don't go act on this, if you don't go implement this in your life, then what, what, have, what have I done? It's for nothing. And so there were probably about 20, 25 players that stayed afterwards to hug me, to tell me, different things that meant things to them. They, some are going through loss, some are going through depression, some are going through different things. And, 
you know, I was able to, to you know, hold them, talk to them, uh, make, you know, have relationships with them, begin relationships with them where I can be a big sister figure, a mom, a coach, a mentor, whatever you want to call it, just somebody who doesn't want anything from them. I don't want anything from the players. I don't want, I don't want tickets. I don't want swag. I don't want anything from them other than for them to live at their highest and best self and to, to love themselves, to have healthy mental health, um, and to treat others well and to really figure out why it is that they were born. Uh, do you think that's a little bit uncommon in uh, football? I know, I know you mentioned some of the societal things, and I don't know what other coaches you've talked to in the past, but is that a little bit different that Lance Leipold has kind of steered into this, that maybe some other coaches uh, stuck in maybe older ways with the societal norms haven't really got around to yet? Um, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I might tend to – agree with you, except for the fact that I've been to Alabama, Auburn, Oregon, Clemson, uh, Texas A&M, Buffalo, Rochester, you know, SIU, big schools and small schools. And so what SMU, I mean, there's 50 that I've been to, and, and um, some are more progressive than others. I'd say Lance is pretty progressive. Um, and what, what these coaches are realizing is, is we can't just coach the way we coached 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago. Not only does NIL, um, but but all sorts of factors, the social media, um, you know, COVID, mental health, NIL, all these things force us to adapt, just like an offense is forced to adapt or, you know, or it gets passed by. And it, the game of football is, is, is an adaptive game, right? And so, you know, I would, uh, if you would ask me that question three, four years ago, I'm, I might have agreed with you, but I'd say, not so much now because more and more are understanding, look, I need to be able to relate to my players better. I need to understand them better. And oftentimes a different voice, a different person, which is a woman, you know, happens to be a woman, um, you know, can pull things out of them and make them feel comfortable in a way that maybe they weren't comfortable with, um, you know, with their coaches. And then I have separate sessions with coaches that did not happen this time at Kansas just because of my schedule. It wasn't anything that the Lance did and we were supposed to do it, but, where I talk to coaches about how to deal with when your players come to you and are struggling mentally. How do you, you know, how do you talk to them? How do you be comfortable getting uncomfortable? How do you take care of yourself? How are you making sure that you have self-care, soul care, so that you can be the best coach, husband, friend, son you can be? So um, it's, it's an interesting metamorphosis, what's happening, the change, and it's actually a beautiful one as well. Yeah, and I kind of wonder from a just college football or not even college football, just college athletics, athletics in general landscape, you know, you have different staffs who you have trainers or you have uh, different people who view uh, from the medical field of, hey, this guy has a hamstring injury. We got to work on him, all this stuff. I I wonder how far away we are from these different teams, maybe having psychiatrists or people that you can talk to to try to help from the mental hurdle aspect that are kind of employed by these different universities and teams across the country? A lot of them do have them. Um, and, I, and I know Kansas does as well. And so um, whether you want to call them, now some are more, might be more in the psychiatrist field, some might be more in the therapist field, some are more you know, mental fitness. I mean, look, here's the reality. I was fighting with somebody nicely. I was going back and forth <laughs> with somebody, how about that, yesterday. I try to be kind. I try, I try, but yesterday I called somebody a ding dong on, on Instagram and I felt bad about it. This morning I may have told somebody to shut up and now I feel bad about it because I'm a really nice person. Uh, so, um, 
you know, but what's interesting is, is look, everybody needs, everybody needs somebody to talk to. And your brain is a physical part of your body. Okay. Your brain is. So when people say, oh, it's a mental injury. Oh, but we treat it different if it was a physical injury. Ding, 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 ding. Your brain is a part of your body. So why are we treating somebody any differently that's struggling mentally? It's because we can't see it. We can't see the broken bone. We can't see the dislocated membrane. We can't see those things. And so there's more and more studies. I just listened to one the other day about a TED Talk where it was, you know, instead of, you know, in a blanket way diagnosing people, actually looking at scans and looking what's going on in their brain. There was one little boy that um, this is a, a great, great study for anybody who's interested in this stuff. This guy was talking about in this TED Talk, I can send a link to you as well, but he was saying, you know, this little boy was acting out, and, you know, he was getting in trouble, and they put him in alternative school, and he was hitting, and he was doing all of these things. And there were doctors that immediately just put him on medication, said he's a troubled child, all of these things, and it escalated. Turns out he had a, a brain tumor. He had a brain tumor, and it was pressing on his brain and causing him to act differently. I'm just saying I think in, in almost all situations, it is worth taking an extra look. It is worth asking a young man or young woman, what is behind the anger? Why are you, why did you hit? That doesn't mean that they're exempt from, from dealing with, with the consequences, but I want to know why you are the way you are. And what is that emotion behind it? What is that pain behind it if there's pain? And so, for me, it's now what I've dedicated my life to the last five years. I retired from sports casting in 2019, just before the pandemic, but uh, <laughs> to do this full-time. And it's been nothing um, short of amazing. It's hard. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I'm, I also work with law enforcement, um, prison ministry, corporations, churches. I, I really just don't think you're ever too young or too old to be who you were created to be. And I think right now, I, I kind of got you on at the perfect time as we're talking to Rachel Barbo here on RCST with the Simone Biles thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were kind of your thoughts there? Because I think this is very relevant to everything we're kind of talking about. Absolutely. You know, it's, it was interesting to me, the people that called her a quitter. I mean, here she is, one of the most decorated gymnasts of our time. And, you know, the other interesting part of it to me is, and, and there's a lot of people that were calling her, or her quitter were, you know, I'm like, have you ever done anything like she's done? You know, like worked on a razor thin, you know, vault or, or done these death-defying, you know, uh, stunts and gymnastics. Have you ever done that? No, many of them haven't. But yet very, a lot of people were very quick to throw stones at her. And yet her own team came out and supported her. Her, she stepped aside what she said in her press conference. I stepped aside because I knew I wasn't a hundred percent and I didn't want to bring my team down. So to me, my friend, it was the opposite of quitting. She was thinking about her team. So, um, you know, I, I pray and hope for the day that when somebody says, I'm not okay, we don't judge them. We don't throw stones at them. We don't, we don't you know, immediately question and because we can't see it, as we mentioned. I long for the day that people say, hey, you're not okay. You know what? I hope you get the support that you need because the reality of, of her situation is she goes out there. She's not okay. And I saw another gymnast tweet this. She makes one bad move, one misstep, and she, she might be paralyzed. She might be grossly injured in, in what she's doing. And, and she had tweeted before. I don't know how long ago it was. Sometimes I feel like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. And that's the pressure that comes with being one of the greatest. 
Yeah, and I think it's very interesting sports in general just because of how much pressure there is applied, but I think it gets tenfold when you're on the level of Simone Biles where you're working how many years just for one event. Yeah. And on top of that, like you said, it's it's not, you know, I, I think I heard it described the twisties was what uh, they said on the broadcast, which uh, kind of sounds like the yips in baseball. But yeah. if you have the yips in baseball, <laughs> it's just, oh, I just threw a ball or something, whereas you're, you're going to have 90 other pitches. If you have the twisties in gymnastics, like you said, you could fall and, you know, seriously injure yourself. So I think it's kind yeah. of very interesting, the whole thing. Well, she is Rachel Barbo. Uh, she just spoke to the KU football team, and you can check out, actually, everything that she talked about. KU football's uh, social media kind of did some videos about it as well. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for the time, and I appreciate you coming on here and kind of sharing the word. Absolutely, and if any of your listeners would love more information, they can go to the website, I'm, the letter I, the letter M, changingthenarrative.org. That's I'm changingthenarrative.org. We always love to hear from people. I just got a message just before coming on with you from a from a player's dad that I spoke to two or three years ago. And he was like, look, you know, I'm a former football player, 6'3", 245 pounds, and we need more people like you that are willing to talk about taking off the mask, not the COVID mask, but the, the mask that we wear for people and hide behind. And, you know, thank you for doing what you do. So I love hearing from people and, um, and love hearing from you on social media and, and through the website. So and thank you again for being willing to have me on. It means so much. Absolutely. Thanks again, Rachel. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. All right, that's Rachel Barbo joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back in. We continue on with our KU football season opponent previews over the course of these days. We're getting through it. We've done the non-con. We've gotten through a trio of different conference opponents with Iowa State, Baylor, and Texas Tech. Today, previewing Oklahoma, the king of the conference and maybe soon to be the king of another conference. Chris Plank of the Sooner Radio Network joins us now. I, I guess before we do get into some of this preview stuff about Oklahoma, what's kind of the word? How crazy are things going down in Norman right now with all the news with the SEC Big 12 talk? Yeah, it's been, it's been wild on our local talk shows. It's been the top story in all of the papers, the lead story in the sports cast. But, you know, in, in all honesty, there's, there's procedures to this, right? And there's a step-by-step process. And Oklahoma has maintained the, we're, you know, obviously with the, the statements that are out there, what happened with Joseph Harris on what was that Monday afternoon and the Jay Hartzell letter that was sent to the SEC. And then, of course, prior to that, the acknowledgement to the Big 12 that they wouldn't be renewing their rights. Sure. I mean, I think anyone logically knows that this story probably has several layers to it that go back quite a bit. But, you know, procedures and wording are very key in this. You don't want to end up putting yourself in a position to where you get get tangled up in a lawsuit. And I am by no means uh, an official with the University of Oklahoma. So it's quiet, I think, is is the best way to put it. There's just there's not a lot of talk about it. There's um, <laughs> there's we're focused on the 2021 season and within those. Within those walls of the OU football office and within the confines of Gaylord Family Oklahoma Memorial Stadium, it's all about the 2021 football season. Because what else can it be, right? Yeah. This process is going to play out um, by, you know, who knows, by this weekend, maybe everything is official and people are a little bit more comfortable in being able to lay out, hey, the future is in another conference. But, I mean, this is, this is no BS, and, and I'm not trying to say anything to, to minimize it, but in all honesty, there's just, 
there's nothing out of Oklahoma right now outside of essentially two statements. And that's, that's kind of how the, I'll give you an example as, you know, as we tape this on Wednesday, Lincoln Riley actually met with fans yesterday. And at the end of his, at the beginning of the, in meeting with fans, they do a, a yearly coaches luncheon, and kind of the message was, "Hey, we we can't, and we're not going to talk about this because we're focused on 2021." And I think, I think for Lincoln and for the coaching staff, until anything becomes official, or or maybe even when it does, they just you can't say anything right now. So. It's on to what's the old Bill Belichick ism? It's on to Cincinnati for Oklahoma. It's on to football season. <laughs> yeah, and I think it would be interesting, especially given, I mean, every year Oklahoma's going to have a shot at not just winning the Big 12, making the college football playoff, but therefore winning a national title. And obviously, haven't gotten over the hump of winning a playoff game right. yet, which that storyline has just been used at ad nauseum at this point. Um, it, I, I wonder how interesting it would be if Oklahoma was able to get out of the Big 12 as soon as next year, and by next year they're competing in the SEC, and if they went out with a bang this year similar to when Missouri won the Big 12 tournament in basketball their final year in, or I guess Nebraska, I think they lost to Oklahoma in the Big 12 title game in football their last year. Um, if Oklahoma was able to go out and win the national title this year in their final year of the Big 12. And it seems like Kinda they like have the old Brett- shot. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like the old Bret Hart, win the WWF title and take it to WCW with you. Wrestling reference, old school, my bad. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I think the feeling in general is that this is one of the best teams on paper that Oklahoma has had. So even if this wasn't next year going to the Big 12, even if, or excuse me, from the Big 12 to the SEC, if it was in two or three years, um, I would – I would assume very, very heavily that they would like to be able to take a Big 12 crown and maybe more specifically, as Lincoln Riley once said, that skinny trophy with them. And in all honesty, I mean, isn't that what Oklahoma needs more than anything else right now? I mean, they need that national championship in football. It's 2000, the 2000 season, 2001 Orange Bowl, their last title. They've come close. And I know some would say, well, it would start with just winning one of the games in the college football playoffs. So maybe it's baby steps there. But no, no, no. I think this team feels very good about its opportunities to compete for the national championship this year, even if even if it's two more, three more, or just one more season in the Big 12. And once you win one, it's like you broke down the dam. And it's not, it's not like the NCAA tournament where it's like, oh, we finally won a tournament game. Right. We're still five away from winning the title. At that point, you're in the title game. And, and right. I think that a lot of the optimism, you can correct me if I'm wrong, with the team is how good the defense was a season ago and what they bring back this year. How are they looking on that end of the ball here in 2021? Yeah, I mean, that's you, you hit it on the head. We came out of spring football, and yes, Oklahoma still has Lincoln Riley as its head coach, and yes, Spencer Rattler is a lot of people's preseason pick for the Heisman Trophy, and yes, he's on every watch list there is for quarterbacks, and sure, there's playmakers at a receiver. But man, we came out of spring ball juiced about this defense, and you know, here's why. It's year three with Alex Grinch. Every year they've improved incrementally, and they're deep. So the, the foundation of Speed D is, is, is to be able to come at you in waves, right? It's, as Alice Grinch would tell you, the, the Sooners' third-year defensive coordinator, it's an effort-based defense. So, you know, it, they didn't have depth. They had two safeties that basically played every down two years ago. And really, to be honest, and Pat Fields and Blair and Turner Yell played a majority of the downs last year. This year, they might be five deep at safety, right? They've got 
They got a nickel back because the nickel is used a lot in their base defense. And, you know, last year they had a guy in Brennan Riley Hiles who played just about every snap. But he transferred off to Washington, and now you have three guys that are competing that position. You've got nine guys in their inside backer room, seven or eight of which that played uh, a pretty solid number of snaps in 2020. You have, you know, you have so much versatility on your defensive line, you're able to move guys inside and out, and their outside edge rusher room has kind of been merged in with their defensive line and defensive tackle room. So, you know, it's not just that they have that depth, it's the talent that they have with the depth. So, yeah, you hit it on the head. I mean, with names like Nick Benito at the edge, Perrion Winfrey in the interior, Isaiah Thomas, the defensive end out of Tulsa Memorial, Brian Osamoa, David Aguebu, an inside backer, uh, and just look at Key Lawrence, the Tennessee transfer, providing depth and safety with Billy Bowman, the freshman, and Nickel. Bro, they got numbers, and it's talented, and that's, that's, that was the strength of this team coming out of the spring. So that's interesting because you have a guy like Nick Bonito, too, on the linebacking core. I, I would think that he's kind of the guy you look at and circle and say he's the, the star of this defense headed into this season. Sure. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of wild because, you know, it's, <laughs> the, I, I struggle with the verbiage, right? Is Benito a linebacker? Is he a defensive lineman? Is he an edge rusher? Because they use him so many different ways, right? He can kind of be your Swiss Army knife of defensive linemen. You know, he came in, some thought he was going to be an inside backer. They immediately moved him to the outside, and he started making play after play after play. He, he saw a lot of snaps last year, and he's going to see even more snaps this year, you think? But he might not because he can specialize in you know certain situations. He can spy quarterbacks. That's what he did against Kansas last year. Um, he can he can get after it on on pass rush situations like he did a majority of the season. So he's the guy when you look outside of Perrion Winfrey, the defensive tackle, and and maybe to a lesser extent Isaiah Thomas. He's the guy that you look at and think, holy smokes, Oklahoma's going to have a defensive player drafted in the first round just like Kenneth Murray last year, and maybe even more so a defensive lineman, which I don't think they've had a defensive lineman go in the first round since Gerald McCoy. So, yeah, Nick Benito, you know, you can label him how you want, linebacker, edge rusher, outside tacker, defensive lineman, uh, whatever it is, I just call him a playmaker because he is everywhere. We're talking with Chris Plank of the Sooner Radio Network. Offensively, you mentioned Spencer Rattler, and that is the big name, but how much of the offense is kind of driven from the running game? Well, you obviously pay attention. That's, that's a great point, man. Uh, and I think sometimes people lose sight of that. Uh, I think they, they see Lincoln Riley's past. They generalize things on the Big 12, and they're like, oh, an air raid offense. This is anything but an air raid offense. And can they sling the ball around? You bet. Where their wide receivers go make plays? You bet. But this has been an offense that has historically been based around a grinded-out running game. You know, we, we do this show called OU Football Flashback, and we, we look back on, on games from years past, and we rewatch them with former players. And yesterday we, re, we rewatched the 2017 OU-Texas game, and we rewatched that year's uh, Big 12 championship game, and it's kind of wild when you see some of the drives that the Sooners went on. You're talking 12, 13-play drives in the fourth quarter of that Big 12 championship game in 2017. Uh, I, I think TCU touched the ball once, and Oklahoma touched the ball once and held it the entire fourth quarter. You know, they, That's something that has been there, but hasn't been to that degree of domination like it was in 17. Their offensive line 
was the best in the country in 18, but it just it kind of struggled to get to that. And you had a big quarterback run game in 18, right, whenever you had Kyler Murray and kind of the things that he was doing. But you're right. This is a run-based offense, and there's a big question mark. You know, what is your offensive line? Is it set? You know, you have questions at left tackle with Wanya Morris, the transfer in from Tennessee, and he's he's been battling, you know, to, 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 to get that starting spot. That's why he transferred in from Knoxville. On the interior, you bring back your starting guards in Tyrese Robinson and Marquise Hayes, but you're breaking in a center after Creed Humphrey was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. So, you know, you've got – You've got questions. It all starts up front with the offensive line. You've added a couple of transfer at the running back position because in that running back's room, it's just been decimated, right? Uh, TJ Pledger transferred. Seth McGowan and Mikey Henderson are no longer with the program. And Ramondre Stevenson left early for the NFL draft. So before the transfer started at running back, you had one running back in Marcus Major who had seen significant carries in a college football game. So that's a lot of a lot of words about the running game to basically say you hit it on the head. You know, that's the quarterback's best friend, and that's been the foundation of this Oklahoma offense. And the offensive line has been good, but it hasn't been elite, and they feel good about the guys they have this year to make it elite and Joe Moore award-winning level again this year. Uh, you mentioned the Sooners flashback thing. I doubt you have any Kansas games on the ledger for that one. <laughs> not yet. Not uh, yet. No, not, not yet. yet. <laughs> Although the, the 2018 game was pretty good, but that was probably better for people in Lawrence than it was uh, down in Norman. Uh, that said, normally I've been asking with all the different guests talking about the teams with the Big 12 ones or if they had played KU the year or two before, what do you remember from the game? I'm not going to ask you that because the game last year was 62-9. to nine. So just from <laughs> an outside looking in perspective, what have been kind of the thoughts from you think maybe around the conference of Kansas making the hire of Lance Leipold? By the way, it's funny you mentioned the 2018 game because uh, that was in it. That was a it was cold, dude. It was <laughs> cold in Norman that night, um, and I'll never forget. You know, Kyler Murray kind of really stepped it up down the stretch, and in doing post game interviews, I I waited around and waited around and waited around, and whenever he finally got done, I'm like, "You got time for an interview?" And he kind of just goes, "You know, my back's kind of hurt, and I had to do a lot tonight." And I was like, "Okay," because <laughs> if you go back and watch that 18 OU Kansas game, he did everything. I think, you know, and again, regardless of what the future of this conference holds, I think a lot of people feel really good about Lance Leopold coming in. I think a lot of people feel really good about the new leadership that's taking place at Kansas. We obviously are always going to feel good about what Bill Self is doing with that basketball squad and some of the studs that he's brought in. But you know this more than anything else in any conference conversation, if Kansas had just a, a competitive college football program right now, they'd probably be on their way to the Big Ten like that with how good they are on the football side of things, or the basketball side of things. But football's been such a detriment that it's made it a challenge to kind of get where I think they need to be as a program. With all that precursor and all that prefix, I'm excited about Lance Leopold. I think he's going to do a good job. I think that there is talent in Kansas in the state where you can bring in guys, you can develop them, um, I, you got to have some success, though. They can't be in 62-9 to nine games. They can't have embarrassing situations play out. You know, I, I think we all loved old Crazy Les Miles and the Dr. Pepper commercials, but we realized that may go down as one of the all-time worst hires in the history of college football, and that's right up there with Charlie Wise. Lance Leopold instantly brings credibility. He's a guy who has won. Um, I love it. I, I love the hire. I, I love the energy that he brought. I hated that he wasn't there in person at Big 12 Media Days, but – 
And I hope good things are on the horizon for Kansas football because this fan base deserves it. He is Chris Plank of the Sooner Radio Network. Chris, thank you so much for the time, being flexible here, and uh, maybe talk to you down the road when KU and OU are lining them up later this year. Oh, man, you got my number. Call me anytime. Glad you're healthy and really appreciate you guys finding time for me. All right, Chris Plank of the Sooner Radio Network joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk to preview Oklahoma. If you missed any of our previous previews, check out our best of RCST podcast brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Next segment, I'm going to be giving you the top 10 sports in the Summer Olympics that if I had to compete at them and actually try, that I would die in. That on the other side. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Welcome back in Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Colsey DeButar. I'm Derek Johnson. I'm going to give you the top 10 sports that would kill me if I participated in the Summer Olympics here in just a second. But first... Uh, some breaking news. Pete Thamel of Yahoo is reporting the Big 12 has sent a cease and desist letter to ESPN. The letter demands ESPN end all actions that may harm the conference and its members and that it not communicate with the Big 12 conference's existing members or any NCAA conference regarding the Big 12 conference members, possible conference realignment or potential financial incentive or outcomes related to possible conference realignment. So I don't totally understand this. Maybe you'll interpret this a different way than I did. I'm kind of interpreting it as ESPN is helping share knowledge, information, financials with the Big Ten, ACC, Pac-12, SEC, whoever, about these different Big 12 schools that would lead to quicker expansion. And the idea of the ESPN would tell the conferences like, hey, if you add these schools, we will maybe renegotiate our deal or whatever and they're being kind of a middleman and sharing information, Big 12 is telling them not to do that. Is that how you interpreted that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's on the journalistic side of ESPN. <laughs> I think it's probably more about the uh, business broadcasting side of ESPN. Still not legal, though. I don't think that's going to – I don't think that's a cease and desist that's going <laughs> to stick around. That just seems like a – I can't say that on radio. Uh, that that that's just something that they're trying yeah, I don't, to I don't flex think uh, yeah. on the on the on ESPN. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's get into our top ten list: sports that if I participated in at the Summer Olympics, which I would never be qualified to do any of these, that I would die trying. And a few things before we get into the list here. I had a couple things. On Twitter, somebody said, oh, the 100-meter, 110-meter hurdles. No, I would not die doing those. I would be severely embarrassed because I would lose by an insane amount to these sprinters, and I would want to die of embarrassment. But I would not actually die. And, yes, I would scrape up my knee doing the hurdle and stuff. But these are things that I would actually be in danger of dying, whether it's because of the danger of what the sport is doing or if it's because of just physical exhaustion, and I would be at risk of dying. So a couple honorable mentions, surfing. I've never surfed, contrary to popular belief, being from California. I don't know, I guess I could die if a wave hit me the right way, but I, I saw the, the videos. The waves weren't like that big. It's not like the 40 foot waves. These were like five foot waves, 10, seven feet waves, I don't know. Um, and there's like lifeguards there. Skateboarding, I don't think I would die, but like I would severely injure myself if I, because here's 
Here's the only rule here. I have to actually fully try to win the competition. I can't just like roam around on a skateboard and just say, oh, you well, I didn't try die. To I have to try. So I have to go down the half pipe and I'm probably like breaking my leg, breaking my arm, whatever. But I don't think I'm dying with the skateboard. Also not listed here. This might be controversial. Karate, judo, taekwondo, or wrestling. Wrestling, I don't think I'd die. I'd just lose very easily. Um, taekwondo is just like kicking, basically. But and you they got have, pads. Yeah. Exactly. They have pads on and they have refs. Judo, they have pads, like basically mini boxing gloves. No, and no. They, no, I saw it. I saw it at least judo? at the Olympics. At least at the they, don't wear, they don't wear gloves at all in the, in the Olympic judo. Maybe I saw the juniors or yeah, something. Yeah, maybe. But you might break your spine in Olympic judo. Some, okay. some big Iranian well, I, dude might just. I'm just going you off what head. I saw videos. I saw videos from the Olympics. I was watching them this morning, planning this list, and they had gloves. They had boxing gloves, and they had gloves on their feet, and they were going at each other. So I don't know if it's based on that. I wouldn't die. And then karate, it wasn't as like cool as I thought. It was more of like wrestling, honestly. They were just kind of like doing different moves, to like try to choke each other out or whatever. I don't think I'd die. So I think I'd be fine there. On to the list. Number 10. 10th on the list of sports at the Summer Olympics that would kill me. Distance running. You know, marathons, the 10,000 meter, the 5,000 meter, the steeplechase. I don't have this higher on the list because there's not like a bunch of risk involved. And I guess hypothetically, I could walk it, but I'm trying to win. So I could die of exhaustion because I'm, I'm not trained for this at all. Yeah, uh, I mean that sounds about right. I, I can't disagree. Maybe the speed walking event would be would be more down your alley though. Yes, although I, th I thought they were getting rid of that. Is that still a thing? I don't even. Remember. Dude, I don't pay attention to the IOC outside Number of every nine. four years. Ninth on the list, the canoe slalom. They have an event where you're in like a, or maybe it's the kayak slalom, but I think they call it the canoe. You're in like a kayak to yourself, and you're going down a basically white water rapid, and you have to like slalom yourself in. Besides me doing terrible at that. The reason that I could die here is it being kind of a whitewater rapid. It's not like an official one, and I have gone whitewater rafting before, so that might serve me well. But if I fall over, I don't think I'm going to be able to flip myself back up on the kayak. I think I'm screwed. I think I'm going to drown. So I would put that on the list for sure. That's fair. Okay. Number, Number eight. eight. Anything with a bike. Um, <laughs> there is uh, mainly these two. There's the BMX freestyle, in which case... Again, like the skateboarding, I'm probably going to get injured, except I think there's more risk for injury on the biking than there is the skateboarding. The skateboarding, it's, you know, you're going down stairs, you're going down like half pipes and stuff, or not even the half pipes. It was just like rails and stuff like that. With the BMX freestyle, it is the big old like half pipe thing. There's more possibility for injury there. I think there's more possibility for injury on the bike. And then the road cycling. If I get in a crash, which I probably will because I'm not an expert at this, at the road cycling, like that could actually kill me. Yeah. Uh, you know, you saw the French lady at the Tour de France. Yeah. Get that guy with his with her sign. Oh, my Yeah, God. that could happen to you. Yeah, that would, be, that would be pretty awful. So anything with a bike would be number eight. Number seven. Seventh on the list, the pole vault. Now, the only reason this is lower, I would have put it higher if I know I could actually get myself up there. But I don't know if I could actually like vault myself high enough to be dangerous. So like if I got myself to the point, if I hit the potential where I was actually able to know what I was doing and stick the pole in the little, I don't know, square so rectangle thing, yeah, whatever thing. it is, and be able to get high enough, I probably am not landing over the pole and onto the mat. I'm probably messing that up somehow. I might be going back the other way. And in that case, I could die because I'd be pretty high up there. I'd take a bad fall. That would be possible. The only reason it's lower 
I'm not confident in my ability to actually achieve that. Yeah, you think you just run straight forward and then uh, bounce off the pole? Yeah, basically. Basically, I'd be trying to sticking the I'd be trying to stick the pole in the thing, and I wouldn't be able to go up on it, and it just like jab into my stomach. Which maybe that could kill me. Maybe I'd get stabbed by it. But otherwise, I'll just have it at number seven. Number six. Sixth on the list of top ten sports I would die trying at the Summer Olympics, diving, specifically the high dive. Now I'm not afraid of heights. I've dabbled in you know the high dive when you go to a pool that has it. I don't think it's as high as the Olympic one though. The reason that I would die in this event is because if I'm participating in diving, and again the rule here is I have to actually try to win, I'm gonna have to participate a trick off the high dive. And there's a chance I either land in a spot that I like break my neck and then fall in the pool and drown, or there's a very good chance that I'm always amazed with the diving that these people don't hit their head on the diving board. They jump off and they do an immediate like spin or they do like an immediate somersault and they don't hit their head. I think if I jumped off the high dive and immediately did a 360 or a spin, I would hit my head right on the high dive. I'd I don't know, crack my head open, I'd land in the pool, I'd drown, I'd die. So diving in at number six. Number and I think five. that is where the list really starts to separate itself, where I would really die. And we go into the top five here of the top ten sports I would die trying at the Olympics. Rugby. I mean, I would I would just get annihilated. These dudes are like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, Although height-wise, I guess I'm there with them too. But they are built, they are fast, they are killing machines. I am most confident that you know, maybe I wouldn't die in this because people don't die often in rugby, but I would definitely get the most beat up in this. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine going against these guys who hit people with no pads for a living. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear the cauliflower ear. That is a term to basically describe rugby players because their ears get so beat up over the course of playing rugby. I don't know if I could last, especially because, think about this, you're not just dropping me into a random rugby game where I'm playing with a bunch of friends in the backyard. You're dropping me in a rugby game with Olympic athletes. I am getting absolutely depleted, and there's a chance I die, which is why it's in at number five. Number four. Fourth on the list, boxing. This one's obvious. I mean, a couple punches to the face, out cold. You are better off this year than the last Olympics. The last Olympics, they got rid of headgear. This mm. Olympics, they brought it back. But if this was Rio in 2016, you were just getting your brain knocked around. Yeah, that would not go well for me. And that's the issue. Like, that's how I would die, boxing. I guess it's possible. I don't know. Do I, like, break my sternum or something? Uh, that could take me out. But for the most part, it would be the head injury. So with the headgear, that probably does save me. You're right. And it also probably saves me that there is a ref. There's an official here who can come out and say, and I guess there's spectators for all this that in theory could help me. But the ref could just easily stop the fight because I'm losing so bad. So that would help me here. That's why it's not in the top three. But clearly, I would get absolutely mauled in the boxing ring to an Olympic boxer. No solid foods for the next couple weeks, at least. Correct. I'm breaking my jaw. I'm breaking many other bones in my face, my body, everywhere. Number three. Into the top three of the top ten sports, I would die trying at the Summer Olympics. Number three, gymnastics. But specifically, I don't think I would die on, like, the floor routine or anything. I'd do terrible, but I wouldn't die. What I would specifically die at in gymnastics is the vault and the balance beam. Now again, I would do terrible at the pommel horse. I wouldn't know what the hell I was doing. I wouldn't be able to hold myself up on the rings or the uneven bars or whatever. But the areas I would die would be the vault and the balance beam because the vault, 
again, if I'm actually trying and I'm trying to do some weird flip that I've never done before and I'm going full-fledged, running full speed, and then I'm trying to do a flip, I would not land on the mat. I would end up in some weird spot. I would land on my head. I would land on my neck. I'd be paralyzed or die, you know? Like, that would just happen. And then on the balance beam, same thing. I would be trying to do some tricks. I would fall off the balance beam in an awkward spot. I'd hit my head on the balance beam. I don't know. I could go lights out at that point. I think you're not giving enough credit to uneven bars where you have to go back and forth between the bars while spinning and doing flips and stuff. But Yeah. No, I, I the thing with the uneven bars is, like, again, I would do terrible at all these things. But I don't think the fall from the uneven bars would be as it's bad lower, as the other. That's right. right. That's and there's, right. there's still the padding there. So, like, I would mess it up. And it would, I would still injure myself, but I, I think I'd be most at risk of dying, honestly, on the vault. Where you're just sprinting, jumping off of a trampoline onto the whatever that thing is called. I don't know if that's called the vault itself that they're putting their hands on to do the twists or whatever. And then I'm getting even more air, and I'm landing somewhere hard, and I'm hurting myself. That would be the most dangerous spot of gymnastics for me. Number two. Second on the list. Distance swimming. They have the 1,500-meter. Katie Ledecky won it last night. She won gold pretty handily. U.S. finished first and second in the distance swimming. Here's the reason I'm dying in the 1,500-meter swim. I don't think I could swim. A mi- that's a mile. I don't think I could swim a mile. I think I would just drown. Yeah, I think like, that's I don't possible. think physically I could I could do that. The difference between this and running is in running, you get exhausted, you pass out, and you're fine. If or you I pass out walk. in the pool, if you pass out in the pool, you die. Right. That's the thing. There is no, there is no walking in this. There, like... Yes, I could swim slower, but I'm still participating in swimming. And I cannot swim for that long. I just can't. Unless I can just tread water for the course of the race for the whatever 15 minutes of the race. I could do that. I could tread water for 15 minutes. But again, if I'm trying, that means I have to constantly be going forward. So in the marathon ones, technically I could walk. I would still be going forward. I would still be working on finishing the race. I have to always be swimming forward. I think I would legitimately pass out of exhaustion because I wouldn't be able to finish the race, and I would just sink to the bottom of the pool and drown and hope that a lifeguard saves me. Deep pools in the Olympics, too. That's the other part of this. Yeah. I mean, those are as deep as you can get. So I'm sinking to the very bottom. I might not be recoverable at that point. Number one. Okay, but the sport that I would die the easiest at the Summer Olympics... I feel like this is obvious based on the last one, triathlon. Because it combines the distance swimming. It's a 1,500-meter swim. But then it's like, even if I do, even on the odd chance that I do make it out of the swimming, now I have to do a 40-kilometer bike ride, which that's involving the bikes again. I could fall off the bike still, or I can die of exhaustion on the bike. And even if I make it through that, which I wouldn't make it through both these anyway, then I have to do a 10-kilometer run. It combines the exhaustion. It combines the bike which I could fall off of. I could fall off a cliff. I don't know. And it involves, again, the worst part for me, which I don't think I could make it in mile swimming. I would drown. I want to pitch you an honorable mention that you yes. failed to failed to cover. What if you accidentally brain yourself with a shot put ball? You're trying to put that in the air. Yeah, you yeah, put yeah. it up like that. No, so I thought about that. I thought about the shot put. I thought about the, um, I think it's the hammer throw and the discus, where you're basically especially in the hammer throw and the discus. You're like spinning around with a very heavy object. That is very dangerous, but I think I could actually do that. I I wouldn't do it well, but I think I could do it without injuring myself. I've done shot put before, like not competitively, but I've done it before without injuring myself. 
So I think I would be fine there, as terrible as I would do. I don't think I would kill myself. Uh, Hawkman also had a suggestion for us. No water polo, question mark. Which, fair question, because it's the same kind of idea of you're going to be treading water for so long, I could drown. And there's the physical aspect where you're still, like, pushing off of each other. There's I'm a lot fine. of fighting in water polo. There is, there is. Again, I would do terrible at it. I would be exhausted afterwards. But I think I could handle just being in a match. I'd be the worst player. Everybody would pick on me. You also can't touch the bottom. That's yes. a, that's a, but then you're out. Treading water is not the issue. It's the actual swimming and giving your full effort for a mile long and going there and back. Now, in water polo, I can kind of hang around, tread water, just pass the ball to my teammates. I think I'd be okay. That's probably a good honorable mention, but I wouldn't have it in the top 10. Any others? Did I miss any? Not that I can think of. Maybe maybe javelin. Maybe you accidentally spear yourself. Again, javelin, shooting, any of those things. Dangerous just because of the item you hold, but as long as you use it right, which I think I would, I would be fine there. It's more of the other ones. That is the top 10 list of sports I would die trying if I had to do them at the Summer Olympics. He's Cole C. DeButar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk.